Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. What about me? I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. Welcome to the Chris Hedges Report. On January 9th, 1966, the White Knights of the Mississippi Ku Klux Klan murdered the black civil rights activist Vernon Damer in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, after firebombing and shooting into his house. It was one of thousands of hate crimes conducted in the South by whites who waged a reign of terror against blacks to frighten them from abandoning calls for desegregation and voting rights. These attacks, including threats, beatings, shootings, and arson attacks on black churches, businesses, and homes. The few men charged with these crimes, including murder, were often acquitted by white juries. To this day, over 150 murders, 56 in Mississippi, remain unresolved. Terrorism by white vigilantes against religious and ethnic minorities is ingrained into the DNA of American society, going back to the slave patrols. Its face was on display in 2015 when Dylan Roof gunned down nine members of a Bible study group in a black church in Charleston, South Carolina. It was on display three years later when 11 worshipers were murdered at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. It was on display when neo-Nazis marched in the streets of Charlottesville, Virginia. It was on display when Ahmed Arbery was murdered on February 23, 2020 in Georgia. It was on display when neo-Confederates who stormed the Capitol on January 6, 2021. The FBI recorded 8,263 reported hate crimes in 2020, a 13% jump over 2019. What motivates these people? How do they look at the world? How do they justify to themselves and others these acts of terror? These questions are explored in the new book, When Evil Lived in Laurel, The White Knights and the Murder of Vernon Damer, by the former Boston Globe reporter Curtis Wilkie. Wilkie, relying on interviews with participants and meticulous records kept by Tom Landrum, who for four years worked as an FBI informant inside the Klan, provides a rare look into the inner workings of white hate, how its extensive network of law enforcement officials, politicians, state and city officials, journalists, preachers, and business leaders colluded in what became a decade of unrelenting terrorism in the South. Joining me to discuss his book, when Evil Lived in Laurel, The White Knights and the Murder of Vernon Damer is Curtis Wilkie. So you write, many of the Klansmen felt wounded by society, poorly educated, ignorant of modern skills and consigned to unrewarding jobs. They seethed over their own situations. They were, you say, mostly made up of resentful men who worked the small farms, oil fields, or logging camps, or held jobs on the line of Masonite, a monstrous factory that loomed over the landscape like a brutal force, converting wastewood into fiberboard. This resentment, you write, hardened into a hatred of the black man. Could you speak about this resentment, especially with so many in the white working class today, also in economic freefall? It sure, it's uh, can metastasize into um, hatred and violence. Uh, it certainly did. Here, as you say at the beginning, it's the sort of thing we're still seeing. I suspect a lot of the people who were involved in 
January 6th, uh, a year ago, uh, would come from the same kind of uh, economic streets. And what is it about that economic deprivation that metastasizes into this racial violence? Well, it it just it's a terrible phenomenon that uh, was certainly with us in Mississippi in the 1960s and manifests itself again uh, outside the South today. Uh, certainly. Uh, involves uh, demagogic uh, political leaders who kind of whip this up under the uh, notion that they are populist. And, you know, to consider somebody like Donald Trump a populist is, is quite silly. You know, the, uh, the populist that I think of, and I think the classic definition of a populist is you know, basically somebody who is coming out of the very situation we're talking about. You know, poor, sometimes uneducated, resentful, uh, and uh, lashing out at authority, leadership, uh, law. And, uh, you know, Donald Trump, you know, comes from uh, the antithesis of that kind of background, but he certainly uh, you know, has been responsible, I think, for a great deal of uh, the surge in this sort of thing over the last five or six years. It's it's like he he reminds me so much of George Wallace uh, 50, 60 years ago. Yeah, uh, I went back actually during the Trump campaign and listened to George Wallace speeches, and it, it was a very similar, uh, almost identical rhetoric, including Wallace's call for violence against his opponents. Yeah, and the press, you know, Wallace loved to, uh, 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 used to press his foils and would single people out in his speeches. And, uh, uh, you know, the Wallace rallies just had this aura of uh, uh, incipient violence, violence about them, which I never went to a, a, a Trump rally. I, happily been retired from journalism for a number of years, but uh, it strikes me as the same sort of thing that we saw with Wallace when I was uh, reporting and covering Wallace. The difference, Curtis, is that Wallace was always a fringe figure, whereas Trump moved to the epicenter of American politics. Yeah, uh, to our distress... Robert Paxton, in his book, The Anatomy of Fascism, writes that the Klan was America's earliest example of fascism. Uh, and this fascism is wrapped in racialized supremacy, the flag, the cross. And in your book, you write about how the Klan opened with a prayer. They would set up a kind of Klan altar at the meetings. Uh, they fined its members for cursing, uh, which I found kind of ironic since they were all then going out to like burn someone's house down. Uh, they burned crosses. They had chaplains. Its leaders quoted biblical verses to justify segregation and acts of violence. Uh, the leader of the Klan group you write about, uh, a guy named Sam Bowers, uh, was an exponent of what he called Christian militancy, uh, was openly at war with the federal government that he said was in the control of uh, atheists and Bolsheviks. Uh, the Klan members referred to themselves as redeemers who would restore Christian values if need be, through violence to the nation. I wonder if you could address this religious component, uh, especially given the connecting tissue among those who stormed the Capitol on January 6th 
and this kind of Christian fascism. Is it the same? Well, uh, it's, not, you know, it, it's a kind of perverse uh, uh, Christianity. I don't think it's the kind of thing that Jesus Christ would have been very comfortable with. Uh, not only did you have uh, these people using the Bible, I mean, the Bible was a prop at clan meetings, and uh, uh, the clansmen who led the murderous raid on the Damer home was actually a minister himself, so a fellow named Cliff uh, Sessions. And uh, he, uh, he, he kind of self-ordained, but it, it, he was a minister. There were uh, uh, ministers involved in those horrific murders in Neshoba County, Mississippi, in the, uh, in the uh, uh, 1964. Uh, one of the ringleaders and the guy who orchestrated that. And uh, Bowers, who you mentioned, who was the imperial wizard of this group, uh, the White Knights, uh, he has a, a lengthy uh, interview that's in the state archives that I was able to locate in which he just uh, uh, goes on and on about uh, the Christian militancy. And uh, one of the tenets is uh, that, uh, you know, homicide is acceptable if you do it uh, with love, whatever, you know, just it's crazy. Uh, the Klan members that you write about were often these kind of buffoonish figures. They espouse these wild conspiracy theories, very similar to groups such as QAnon. Uh, they gave themselves these odd assortment of official titles like uh, Imperial Wizard uh, and Grand, Grand Cyclops. Uh, they oh. had this sense of importance and empowerment within the group that the wider society denied them. I, I wanted you to talk about this aspect of the Klan and its attract, attraction to these people. Well, I, you're, you're right at it there. You know, it, it gave them this uh, sense of authority that perhaps they'd never had. You know, suddenly they've been anointed, exalted class ops. Uh, you know, just... Uh, you know, Grand Dragon, Imperial Wizard, uh, silly stuff, kind of thing you would think children would do. But uh, they they loved that. Um, they were looking for any kind of respectability that uh, the Klan provided. And, you know, the, the Klan also provided you know, it was camaraderie between these people. It was, uh, for some of them, it was like, belonging to a civic club, except their meetings were, you know, secret and uh, uh, involved, uh, you know, pistols and knives and the Bible and the Confederate battle flag as, as props. Uh, you know, it, it, was, it was very weird, you know, and, you know, while we're talking about, uh, the, you know, the poor, less educated people, the odd thing was that, uh, there were some uh, allegedly respectable businessmen uh, or public officials, uh, some with college educations, who joined the Klan also. And I think you know, that was largely driven out of racial hatred. Well, throughout the book, you, you write about how these political figures 
uh, essentially had to play to the Klan. They could not run afoul of the Klan uh, for fear of uh, losing their elected position. Yeah, in, in those days, you know, the, the, there were plenty of counties in Mississippi where the Klan uh, had a control of very extensive uh, voting bloc that could sway the outcome of elections. So, sure, these, these uh, political people would pander to the Klan. Would, uh, uh, there were plenty of instances, you know, you mentioned at the outset, these uh, people who might have been indicted or brought to trial for some of the crimes and uh, were never convicted, either hung juries or outright acquittals, uh, quite often the public official in charge of drawing up the jury list, uh, they were members of the Klan themselves, so they made sure that there were fellow Klansmen on the jury list who would provide, the you know, all it needs is one, one person to uh, you know, hang a hang a hang a jury. Well, that and was that was part of the goal. They always tried to put one clans person on the jury. One clan, they were men. One clansman on the jury, and then the clans people would never be convicted. Yeah, that happened repeatedly in Mississippi in the sixties, including uh, the trials against uh, not only uh, Sam Bowers. He was brought to trial four or five times before he was finally convicted. 32 years after the murder, but also uh, uh, another dreadful character uh, named DeLay Beckwith, who assassinated uh, Medgar Evers in Mississippi in 1963. Uh, uh, so uh, there were plenty of instances uh, where there were uh, hung juries, and these were two of the most significant the civil rights trials held in Mississippi uh, in the 60s. And, and during the 60s, uh, they all wound up uh, with home juries. Uh, I think uh, Beckwith was more than 30 years after he, the murder of uh, Evers. It, it took before, um, before Beckwith was convicted. I think that was in 1994 and... Uh, so throughout your book, uh, there's repeated examples of collusion between law enforcement, elected officials, and the Klan. Uh, the three civil rights workers, James Cheney, who was black, uh, Michael Scherner, Andrew Goodman, both of whom were Jewish, uh, and that's an element in the book, uh, who were murdered in June 1964 in Philadelphia, Mississippi, had been turned over to the Klan by local law enforcement officials after they were stopped uh, for a bogus traffic violation. Can you speak about these kind of interlocking systems of white supremacy and how they work? Well, it just existed in Mississippi at that time. It was uh, it was more acceptable uh, in Mississippi in the 60s. Uh, happily, uh, much of that has changed. Uh, we still have racism in Mississippi. We still have uh, uh, attempts at suppressing voter registration and exercise of vote by blacks in Mississippi. But uh, the climate that we had in the 60s, the time in which uh, the book covers, uh, it was widespread throughout the state and it, it seeped into law enforcement. It, it uh, 
operate at the highest levels. You know, the uh, uh, quite often the, the governor, lieutenant governor, legislators, they were all sympathetic with, uh, with the Ku Klux Klan. You know, when, um, when those three young men disappeared into Shelby County in 64, uh, our U.S. senators uh, said this is a hoax that those boys have gone down to Cuba and they're probably enjoying uh, a drink with Fidel Castro. And it was all a communist plot when, in fact, uh, they had been uh, executed and buried uh, uh, in a forlorn part of Neshoba County. And it was only after uh, the FBI had paid off some people who knew about it that their bodies were uh, discovered. And I think, you know, that particular incident, along with, say, the Damer uh, murder, where they attacked his home in which he had three children living there and a wife and burning the thing to a ground and succeeding in killing him. He stayed in the burning house uh, in a gunfight with the, the attackers while the family escaped through back windows. You know, the, the, the kind of people who would do that, you know, they're, you know, depraved. And, um, uh, you know, back at that time, uh, these crimes were kind of brushed off by authorities. It, you know, it was the kind of thing that worked uh, during the battle uh, to redeem ourselves. That's another great word that you mentioned that, uh, all of this goes under the guise of being redeemers uh, to, you know, recover control of the South uh, after Reconstruction. So it's, you know, a great deal of resentment. You know, that's uh, uh, that resentment in part, you know, grows out of Reconstruction. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's a long history down here. And... Uh, I wouldn't be living in Mississippi today if it were as bad or prevalent as it was back then. But sadly, uh, there were, you know, aside from uh, uh, the black communities in the South and uh, a handful of whites, it was uh, generally accepted uh, as, a, as a fact of life. So there are two heroes in your book. There's Tom Landrum, who at tremendous personal risk to himself and his family, worked without pay for the FBI as an informant, and the courageous civil rights leader, Vernon Damer. I wonder if you could speak about these two men. Sure. Yeah, well, uh, Vernon Damer is just a uh, first class uh, hero. Uh, he was a black man uh, who had dared to... Uh, be a leader in his region in South Mississippi on voter registration. He was the um, president of the NAACP chapter in Hattiesburg, which is, a, uh, by Mississippi standards, a fairly substantial city. And um, uh, he took great risk. Uh, he was threatened uh, for several years before they finally struck uh with their, their fatal raid in January of 1966. So he knew that uh, uh, he was at risk with what he was doing. And 
he, uh, I, I know I interviewed his widow uh, before the, the, the final trial of, of ours, and she talked about how they uh, uh, alternated sleeping at night and always with guns by their bedside. And uh, he might sleep for the first four or five hours of night, and then she would take over and, uh, and sleep. So uh, that's the kind of fear that, uh, you know, that they had, and yet uh, they were not intimidated. And uh, so uh, he was you know, a terribly brave man and a good man and, uh, and a true hero in, in the movement. Uh, Tom Landrum uh, was a white man from the same region who uh, was a youth court counselor. And uh, happily, you know, there were white people who were troubled by what was going on. But so often uh, they didn't know where to turn to try to do good and to com combat the Klan. So Landrum uh, worked with the FBI as a youth court counselor. Uh, they, would, uh, they would check out potential bad boys and that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, the local FBI agent realized that uh, Tom Landrum was, was troubled. And so he approached him and said, would you be willing to join the Klan and report regularly to us? And so uh, Tom Landrum went home. Tom Landrum also had uh, a big family. Uh, he had a wife and five children at home and uh, talked to his wife, talked to his mother-in-law. They actually went on a retreat and prayed over whether he should uh, take up this uh, uh, challenge from the FBI. And they all decided it was something he had a duty to do, in part as a good Christian. And uh, Tom Landrum then did it without pay. There were a lot of informers during that period that the FBI paid uh, Tom Landrum uh, got mileage, and I don't even think uh, the FBI reimbursed him for the Klan uniform he had to buy. Uh, and he did it uh, at great risk to himself. Uh, there was one incident uh, near Natchez during the time that uh, Landrum was uh, uh, in the Klan and informing where uh, a Klansman who was thought to be an informer was murdered by the White Knights. So Landrum also, like uh, Vernon Damer, he, uh, these were two people who risked their lives uh, with you know small children within their family uh, to to try to do good. So I, I I think you're right in characterizing both of them as heroes. So I get about halfway through your book, and I think this is a good story about the FBI. This is, of course, during COINTELPRO and everything else. And then uh, you get to this uh, moment where the FBI brings in this soldier from the Colombo crime family, Gregory Scarpa, in, he's from New York, to intimidate and beat kidnapped Clan members to force them to talk. So I just, I, I just want you to talk about those tactics, which are kind of familiar to those of us who follow the FBI, uh, especially if you look at the history of the left or the Black Power movement. 
Well, of course, you know, uh, I, uh, one thing I don't want to do is totally aggrandize the FBI. They did, uh, they were helpful in Mississippi in the 60s, uh, no thanks to J. Edgar Hoover, their director, who basically disliked uh, uh, the whole idea of the civil rights movement and despised Martin Luther King and uh, did everything he could to undermine uh, Dr. King's efforts. Uh, and uh, they were involved in a number of extra legal activities in Mississippi and elsewhere, as we both know, we, as I'm sure you have and I have, back when the COINTELPRO documents were all revealed, I think uh, sometime in the 70s, uh, it was quite amazing and, and frightening some of the things that the, the FBI was involved in. In, in my book, uh, there are basically uh, two instances. One is for them to import this hitman from the mafia in New York who is already uh, working with the FBI. He's trying to beat a, uh, a rap he's got in New York, and so they uh, induce him to uh, uh, do dirty things for them. And uh, uh, there's one of the FBI people who had been sent to Mississippi uh, knew of Scarpa and sent a request to the FBI in New York, can you send us, uh, uh, that That part's redacted from uh, the FBI document I have, but uh, it's clearly, it's Gregory Scarpa, he fits the profile. And they sent him to Mississippi, and uh, uh, along with his girlfriend, and, you know, the FBI pays, you know, his airfare, his, uh, room and he shows up uh, at the business of a uh, guy who is a ranking clan member and uh, they kidnap him basically and uh, drive him out in the country and beat the hell out of him and uh, send him to the hospital. Uh, so intimidated him that he began uh, turning over all sorts of information uh, to the FBI. You know, the second instance in my book is uh, during a period when the white knights turned from blacks to begin attacking Jews in Mississippi. And they uh, began bombing uh, synagogues and the homes of prominent uh, Jewish businessmen as well as rabbis. Uh, and so when uh, uh, Jewish leaders met with the FBI and uh, they said, you know, what can we do? Well, the FBI told them, well, give us money for this slush fund that we'll use for uh, essentially illegal uh, activity. And uh, this particular slush fund that I wrote about uh, was used in Meridian, Mississippi to set up an ambush uh, of a, uh, uh, a couple of Klansmen. It turns out that one of the Klansmen was a young woman uh, who were about to uh, deliver a bomb to the home of a Jewish businessman. And uh, did they attempt to arrest them? No. Uh, they unloaded on them with a 
SWAT team and, you know, I think even some members of the military, local law enforcement, FBI, and, uh, you know, blew the hell out of this car, killed the young woman. Uh, you know, it was an evil thing they were involved in, but uh, uh, it's highly extraordinary. No warning, no nothing. You know, they stepped out of the car and, you know, at, you know, dozens of people unloaded on I just want to close, Curtis, the last couple minutes, because I one of the things that I found fascinating with your book is because of uh, that inside account within the Klan, we really got a view into how these people think uh, and why they think the way they do. And I want you to draw it to this particular moment because we see a resurgence of this kind of, uh, you know, rabid nationalism and white supremacy uh, in these kind of cult-like figures around Trump and, of course, in the attacks uh, on the Capitol on uh, January 6th. Uh, and I, I just want, want you to kind of draw parallels between what you wrote about and where we are today. Well, you see it in uh, not necessarily uh, the Ku Klux Klan anymore, but in these new groups that pop up, you know, whether it's Proud Boys or, you know, all these weird names they have for groups, you know, it's, uh, it's generally not the work of one individual uh, out as a you know, single-minded assassin, but rather uh, people who meet and get together and share their grievances and uh, resentments and, uh, you know, uh, lash out. And, you know, we certainly saw it January 6th, but, uh, you know, You've seen it in a number of other places, not just uh, in the South today, but uh, uh, all around the country. Uh, it's, just, it's, uh, it's the same sort of thing. Uh, it uh, doesn't go by the Ku Klux Klan anymore, but uh, you know they might as well. And would you argue that it's driven by the same economic despair? Sure, that's part of it, but uh, that's not the not the only motivation but yeah that certainly is uh you know a, a, a major thing so i was just you know downright hatred uh if uh, some, some of these people uh don't have money and uh you know they just you know they don't like blacks or they don't like liberals or you know liberals are communists and you know they uh, fear that you know, you know, if not communism, you know, it's, you know, something's going to take over America. It's, it's crazy stuff, and uh, it's uh, you know, it's helped along by you know, right wing uh, radio talk shows, and you know, sadly, uh, you know, some uh, television networks that play into this whole thing. Great. That was Curtis Wilkie on When Evil Lived in Laurel, The White Knights, and the Murder of Vernon Damier. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, Dwayne Gladden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrishedges.substack.com. 